Hello and welcome to the Keswick Convention Podcast. I'm your host, James Carey, and I'm joined this time by Ministry Director for Keswick Ministries, James Robson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jam. Well, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about why you're involved in the Keswick Ministry and, and what exactly that means to you and what are the possibilities and what, what's coming up. But first, it'd be good to start about your, your journey to faith. Were you brought up in a Christian home? So I was brought up in a, a, a wonderfully loving uh, church-going um, home. I was the middle of three brothers, um, who and sport was our dominant uh, childhood and uh, teenage activity. Any particular favourite sports? Uh, so I loved cricket. We, we were ma- incredibly competitive as a family. My elder brother is now a professional bridge player. My younger brother um, has branched out and he's uh, in the merchant banking world. And so it was very competitive. Uh, but I was cricket and then uh, through teenagers, I ended up playing more golf as well because I was growing too fast. Ah. So I took up golf. Okay. And that's a, that's a sport you ultimately play against yourself, isn't it? Yeah, though it could be pretty competitive against others as well in match play. But no matter how good you do at golf, you always think you could have done better because you know it's it's a it's a tough one, isn't it? It's a mental game, golf. Uh, massively mental. I've, I've yeah. learned a lot about myself, and um, it's developed uh, character in me in a, in me in a way. <laughs> Uh, it makes you realise where, where the anger goes, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> exactly, yes. Yes, I stopped playing it a long time ago, partly for that reason. Yeah. I was tired of re- realising again what a sinner I was. So it was a happy home, that's uh, that's good to hear, but not one that was uh, particularly Christian. Well, uh, so through my teenage years, um, though I was confirmed on April Fool's Day in, in Church of England, I'd have described myself as an atheist when I left home to go off to college. Was there any particular reason you had those conclusions? Was it inherited was it looked at the world around you at one level it was practical atheism none of my friends believed chapel at school when i was taken to it was was something i didn't uh, appreciate at all but i think there was a cynicism and um a general unbelief mm. so when i arrived as a student at, at university um i grabbed all different leaflets from different the freshers fair that you have all different university clubs and societies and when I returned to my room, I sifted through that substantial pile, discarded anything related to Christianity before looking through the rest at leisure. Um, and what did you end up getting into at university? I was a classicist. I arrived to study, was that a question, Latin and Greek? Yeah, yes, but um, also in terms of those, what what are those, oh, what are those leaflets did also grab your mind? Yeah, so, so I played uh, golf for the university almost every weekend. Um, I played a lot of the card game Bridge. I was um, playing representative bridge as well could you get a blue in that no but it was i was doing some uh, county and possibly national stuff as well okay so is there a in a parallel universe is there a professional golfer called james robson golf was very hard i mean i, I did get a blue for golf but i the level between good amateur and professional right. is massive yeah, yeah, no, and you you see that when you get close, you go, oh, I see. It's <laughs> exactly. very different. Exactly. You were doing uh, classics, um, but I, I see that somewhere along the line, experimental psychology ends up on your CV. Uh, what what is what is that? <laughs> it sounds like a Stanford experiment gone horribly wrong. Yeah, so um, I changed about halfway through my time at college. Um, I'd become a Christian during that time. I'd always been interested in how people thought and worked and operated and experimental psychology the conviction is that you can replicate um, real world real world thinking decisions in a 
laboratory environment. So it's much more at the scientific end of psychology. Oh, that's interesting. So we'll we'll get on to how you became a Christian in a moment. But what was it about becoming a Christian that made you want to get into people's heads like that? I mean, that's a that's an unusual <laughs> thing to to start to dig into. So I kind of had enough of classics. I tried to change when I first arrived as a student away from classics, um, but they wouldn't let me change. So I managed to change after the first set of exams that I did. Initially, it was to psychology and philosophy because I'd done some philosophy as part of my classics. But um, the philosophy I didn't enjoy at all. There was a strongly atheist uh, philosophy tutor who tried to persuade me as a young Christian that miracles couldn't happen and didn't happen. And um, I was fascinated by psychology. Though, interestingly enough, even with that, I sat in on Richard Dawkins's lectures in the zoology department. Wow. So you're obviously your thinking was dramatically changed <laughs> yeah. um, at university. How did that come about? So I suppose the first thing to say was that arriving at university, I thought I'd arrived in that sense. I'd made it my childhood ambitions. Things were going, humanly speaking, very well with playing golf for the university, a lot of bridge studies are going pretty well but I felt there was a certain superficiality and there was something like of course I know now I hadn't really arrived at the top of any mountain but it felt like I'd arrived at the top and there was nothing there so there was a certain disaffection um I bumped into two first year students I'd had too much to drink one night after a dinner bumped into two first year students they invited me for coffee and it turned out they recently themselves become Christians and uh I'd never really met a, a real living, breathing Christian to talk to. And I had a certain disbelief and I suppose contempt. And so we got arguing into the night. But they had a joy and a peace that attracted and intrigued me. So how did that, what happened then? How long did it take? Well, um, <laughs> a bit like tug of war. Um, you think you're anchored once you start moving. In my case, I moved quite quickly. I, I, they prayed. They lent me books. They invited me to hear about Jesus Christ's events. They patiently answered the questions. And... It was over the next weeks that followed um, that I uh, heard that there was a university mission in Oxford and a guy called Nigel Lee was speaking. And um, oh, I remember Nigel Lee. Uh, uh, very, very large smile visible from a long way off. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I knew that Jesus Christ had died for me. I knew because of the resurrection that he was alive and could be known personally. And I still remember to this day heart trembling, kneeling down beside my bed and giving my life to Christ. Goodness. It sounds like initially it was a sense of purpose that you were looking for that attracted you. But what would you? is it the person of Jesus Christ who finally sort of won your heart? Absolutely, yeah. So at one level, I, I became persuaded it was true. At another level, I was captivated by this person and uh, knew him to be a, a, both... Uh, having died to forgive my sins, but also um, could be known personally today because the re- resurrection, he was alive and in business. Mm. And Michael Green's work was very influential for me at that point in time. All right. Say a bit more about that. Well, it was his little booklet, Come Follow Me, that I read. And um, the day after I'd um, given my life to Christ, um, I was taken next door from the college I was studying at to uh, an early morning communion service that the local church did, which was St Aldate's Church, where Michael Green was the rector. 
And I, w- I remember walking in at 7.30 in the morning and never imagined so many students would be up at that time, let alone as many Christians as that in, in one place at one time. And at the end of the service, a, a, a very little man with a bald head bounded up to me and I was towering over him and he greeted me and said, I've not seen you here before. Uh, well, it's difficult to miss me, I suppose. And I replied, I've not been here before. Uh, paused and then continued, I've not been a Christian that long. And he said, how long? And I said, a day. And <laughs> and this, this diminutive little man left the ground with joy and moments later broke into spontaneous prayer. And the oh. joy and intimacy in prayer made a profound impression on me. And later that day, I found a small handwritten card in my pigeonhole at college inviting me to tea. And at the foot was a little Bible verse, Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you and help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I went round for tea with what I later discovered was a um, a, a writer, thinker, evangelist and pastor um, mm. who had was known across the world. Yeah. But I guess this is a world that you previously you know you were like a muggle wandering around not seeing <laughs> this sort of yeah you, you pitched up to a communion service next door and it's like who are all these people yeah. where do they come from and exactly hello kate here from keswick ministries if you're enjoying this podcast why not check out keswick's other podcast kes talks they're a selection of talks from god's word given at the keswick convention that we hope and pray will be particularly helpful to people in the times we face now Kez Talks, available on iTunes, Spotify, and your podcasting apps. These terms at university are very short, and they it all ends quite quickly. So at the end of that, how, how did you go from there to being a, I'm going to say it, theologian um, at uh, Oak Hill um, Theological College and, and then uh, Wycliffe? How, how did that come about? All through uh, university, uh, I was, I suppose, in God's kindness through the influence of some wonderful people meeting to read the Bible one-to-one with me and nurturing me in church. My faith grew. I got involved with an organisation called Christians in Sport and um, was very much of the, Lord, I don't know what you have for me with my life, but here I am, I'm available. Um, Mm. And um, there are pivot moments in that. I remember singing that song, Servant King, and just... Make, being available at that point in time so some were thinking encouraging me to think about christian ministry straight away i others would say no it's good to do it uh, to work in another environment first so i ended up uh, leaving university and joining the computer company ibm and i worked with them for three years and uh, was based in southwest london and that was really helpful in lots of ways for me um both in terms of living working in a competitive business world I was involved with marketing technical marketing side um, but alongside that there was others encouraging me to say and there was a growing I think realization for me that um, I should think about a paid Christian ministry so I offered myself ordination in the Church of England and was accepted and went to train in Oxford in back in Oxford in 1991. Right I mean looking back on that it sounds like you were very glad that you spent three years at IBM and people sort of forget that IBM were a huge global player. You know, they were, you know, Apple and Microsoft in the nineties, weren't they? Exactly. Um, But I think to what extent looking back, would you say 
uh, anyone listening to this podcast who is in that sort of situation where they're young and they're thinking about ministry and people are often told it would be good for you to go and get some experience of the world uh, they could reply yes there's no biblical justification for that um, in terms of personality and, and character is are the main qualifications for Christian leadership and pastoring so so how would you how would you advise somebody in that position obviously without knowing their specific situation <laughs> He says no biblical precedent. I suppose the Lord Jesus, if we say he was 33, he only had three years okay. of public ministry. Yeah. So um, if God incarnate is given 30 yeah. years to develop in his life before public ministry. But I'm thinking of people who are uh, people who are authorised to, to teach, you know, and I'm thinking in the epistles. Sure. I do think that growth in character and godliness is forged in difficult environments. Mm. Um, I was reading Psalm 119 this morning. It was good that I was afflicted, not that the study of business is, is, is affliction. Um, if people are, are running from ministry, which are paid ministry, then I think it's not such... It's not. I don't want to say, well, why are you running if, if you ought to be doing it and you've got the gifts in the heart and you're praying for the desire for it. But if people are chomping at the bit to go and do it, I might want to say, well, have you thought about just because you grow and develop in all kinds of different ways through that? And as I say, the Lord Jesus um, had uh, 30 years before um, his public uh, word and <laughs> spirit ministry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, entirely reasonable and biblical. Of course it is. <laughs> um, and you're a theologian. I'm just a writer. I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. So you went off to college for the Church of England with the expectation that this would be curate, vicar, rector, that kind of ministry. But obviously you ended up in a more theological setting. Was that always the plan or, or do, again, were you just open? Yeah, that's a great question. So um yeah, I arrived at Wycliffe at Hall in Oxford training for Church of England ministry, and we all were planning to go off back into local church ministry, and as you say, exactly that, and to serve in the local church context. And that was what I was planning to do after leaving college as well. College wasn't an entirely happy time for me, I think, in some ways. Um, I was wonderful to meet my wife, Bridget, there. Um, but I didn't find it easy. I had some health issues there as well. Um, I think there's a number of things that happened over the next three or four years where the Lord was just putting some marker posts in the in the way. Or um, Have you thought about doing something different? So one thing was that the, my tutors at um, college encouraged me to think about further study. So there was Alistair McGrath, um, the theologian, and uh, a guy called Dick France and David Wenham. They were my tutors there. They've written various books on New Testament stuff, and they encouraged that. Um, then there was um, the fact that because I'd been a classicist as an undergraduate, I decided, because I always want to go back to the first principles and question what other people are saying and don't want to accept people's word necessarily at face value. I want to get back into the Bible. So I learned Hebrew as a student in at Wycliffe Hall. And there were very few people who were evangelicals who had Hebrew um, and could engage at that level. And so people said, you should think about doing what others can't or won't do. And so there was that kind of encouragement. Um, I heard a talk that John Stott uh, gave, 
when he made an observation about the global church, it wasn't, it was just an observation. He said in his observation, looking around the world, the health of the church depends on the health of its colleges. And um, another uh, conference I was at, um, there were about 140, I suppose, young ministers and the speaker put their, asked people to put their hands up if they'd had a good time at seminary training and no hands went up. And then he said, so how many of you are thinking about going into seminary? And not a hand went up. And he said, well, you can't grumble about it if you're not prepared to invest in it. Um, and I suppose the final thing, which was a, um, was someone came to the, the church where I was ministering in North London at the end of the Piccadilly Line in Cockfosters called David Peterson. He'd become the new principal at Oak Hill College. And he had a passion for thought-through, engaged um, church ministers, and he encouraged me to do some further study. And it was those things came together that I ended up um, doing a master's after I'd finished my first four years of ministry training, which then became a PhD. And the die was cast, as it were. Well, even then, I think it was not certain, but then... Okay. I was asked to join the teaching staff at Oak Hill and I kind of fell into it, not really right. expecting to. But the thing which really excited me and encouraged me was that um, rather than this being a flight from ministry and a flight from parish life or whatever, this was very much a calling to, and this was an extension of ministry. You were involved with the training of trainers for the sake of the church and actually, David Peterson's great vision was getting people to teach who didn't want to be there, who wished they were in the local church setting. And that gate stopped the seminary being a cemetery. Uh, seminary being a cemetery, I think it's a nice, uh, uh, it has a, has a certain ring to it, doesn't it, unfortunately? Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like, though, that it was a mixture of opportunity, encouragement, godly people telling you and also a need you're sort of balancing a whole load of things aren't there as people are considering and testing yeah. both vocation but also uh, secular vocations and all these exactly. kinds of things there are lots of things to weigh up aren't they yeah very very much so and i think for me it was um recognizing the wider church's call claim sending using whether it was the selection of the church of england process or later on and um not mapping out my own career path in that kind of narrow way but being available i guess it it is easy to always say unless you're doing frontline ministry you're not you're not really doing it right or there's always more that can be done and there are so many non non-christians and we have to evangelize and it's easy to get carried away that everything is that the way to serve is to to do that work and yet we are constantly reminded of the need to be part of a body um, absolutely and that you you just you, we're all called to do different things in different ways yes that's exactly right it, mm. exactly and um not be give, i suppose from a sporting analogy be in your sweet spot and and not try yeah. and be someone else because you're uniquely the person the Lord has made you to be with the gifts and the background, the experiences, and recognising that. Because it's easy to feel, especially at places like the Keswick Convention, where you have people standing up and giving talks, and you know, often, yeah, I was going to say often excellent talks, always excellent talks. <laughs> yes. Um, and But there is a way of saying that this is what successful ministry looks like, um, and actually it, it is... And, and no one's saying that it is. It's just it's very easy to take that as a 
as a model of uh, success or how ministry should be or what uh-huh. we should be yeah. going off to do. Yes, I mean, even the word successful is a very hard thing to evaluate. Mm. Was Jesus' ministry successful or was the Apostle Paul's in the sense if you look, we, we know now it was, but when people des- or Jesus' disciples desert him or when the Apostle Paul looks at people in the province of Asia um, turning their backs on him, the Lord is able to work amazingly. It's us being mm. faithful and and committed where the Lord's put yeah. us and keeping going. And hopefully as people listen to this podcast as we go through, there'll be loads of different people in loads of different situations who've arrived there for all kinds of yeah. different reasons, doing different different ministry. Mm. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to having that conversation with lots of different people. So the first part of that conversation took place a little while ago and things were, shall we say, comparatively normal and things are comparatively different now. So I've got James again here with me and we're living in a world where the Keswick Convention has been uh, called off or scheduled, rescheduled, changed, made virtual. James, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the agonising decision it must have been to call off the Keswick Convention as we currently understand it? Things were moving very fast in March. I mean, it was early March, and I it, well, it was one o'clock even before that to February, and it seemed that coronavirus and COVID-19 seemed uh, distant and then moved very fast. And basically, it was very, very hard, but it, it was crystal clear that we need to do something. Um, I think there were three main reasons that really pushed us in that direction. Um, one was just loving our neighbour. That means um, you should never, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, abandon your neighbour. So that's partly um, our neighbours in the town in Keswick. And there are obviously understandable concerns about a big event coming. Though uh, there are other events that were still scheduled to keep running um, in Keswick earlier than July when we were cancelling ours. So there's one thing around that. And of course, also other vulnerable um, adults and the vulnerable people associated with the convention, supporters and others. So one thing that loving a neighbour. The other was a practical one, which is recognising that as things were, um, uh, Boris Johnson, the government were increasing restriction numbers and so on, um, that it was basically the logistical operation involved in putting the convention together was going to become increasingly problematic. Um, a number of key volunteers uh, and some staff would need to self-isolate and there was no obvious, you couldn't recruit replacements, there's no obvious way of finding replacements at that point in time. And the third thing I think was a financial one, which is to say um, if you cancel early enough, there are a bunch of costs that you avoid incurring. Um, But I think it was a combination of those three things, loving your neighbour, the practical and the financial that must have been a tough decision to make. How did it, how did it batter you as, um, as somebody who is very senior within the Keswick Convention that it's kind of on you? I know it's a group of people making that decision, but how, how, how do you reflect on, on, on that time, which now probably seems like a <laughs> lifetime ago, that you had to cancel the convention and now you're looking forward to a virtual convention? But uh, how do you reflect on that time personally? It was, of course... Uh hard personally something you've put a lot of hours into preparing for and investing in was very hard also acutely conscious that 
Um, it isn't actually for us that we organise it. We organise it for the thousands of people for whom the Keswick Convention is a real highlight of their year and to be um, saying, actually, this isn't going to be running this year and just knowing disappointed children, disappointed adults, people for whom this is an oasis, uh, spiritual refreshment was going to be very hard. Um, on the other hand, um, the Lord is still on his throne and acutely conscious of uh, many, many, many people for whom this is life and death, not whether we run an event or not. And so a sense of perspective, I think, was just really important and vital that we pray for and love and care for um, those who are um, both doing all they can in the health service and helping, uh, but also many who are victims or grieving or whatever. And I guess it's very easy to be part of a convention which has sessions on things like suffering and tell people, well, the Lord is on his throne and everything, there is no plan B, God knows what he's doing. And then to be on the receiving end of it yourself as a convention. I mean, that's quite a, uh, it's quite refreshing to be, uh, to be reminded of that lesson, I guess, although you wouldn't choose that manner. But which of us chooses the suffering that we do go through, I guess? No, that's, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. So... Um, obviously you had to swallow that for a bit and think, what, what do we do next? And then, uh, you've plotted and planned and come up with a thing, uh, which is virtually Keswick Convention. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? You know, I'd love to, yeah. We're very excited. We've just been, uh, launching that and, and highlighting that. Um, the first thing I think we were just conscious of is, should we do anything rather than, I mean, rather than nothing. And of course, um, planning something several months out when we don't know what the situation is going to be like made it that bit harder um, and I th so there was a genuine question should we do something at all but we just felt this was the the right thing to do um, people encouraging us to do that um, so we were very keen to to do that and then the question is what kind of theme should we go with um, we decided to change the theme from the original theme that we had which was gratitude or being grateful to the Lord not because we can't be grateful in all circumstances, but because we recognise that the, the need of this hour is around the question of hope. And it seems that there's a particularly distinctive Christian message in the midst of suffering that um, a Christian is not a prisoner of the present moment because of hope in Jesus Christ. It doesn't somehow um, mean that suffering is, uh, doesn't matter. It doesn't mean we don't cry out to the Lord and say, why, how long? Um, so we're very keen to do something on the theme of hope. And so that was really where I think it came from, um, thinking let's do something virtual, online, have something sustained and focused around hope, which local churches and others can't do because they're doing week-by-week -week ministry, but not a sustained focus on something. So what is Virtually Keswick going to look like? So it's going to be uh, from Monday the 27th to Friday the 31st of July, um, it's self-consciously going to be a stripped-down convention that's virtually, as in Keswick Convention, it's online, um, but it's also not going to be um, to the same extent. Obviously, we're starting a new event from scratch three months out. So there'll be basically a morning introduction and then a welcome from hosts and then uh, one seminar each day following from that and in parallel that there'll be some children's uh, activities and children's teaching that goes with that. That will then uh, follow it with a Bible reading in the mid part of the morning. And that's basically the morning programme. In the evening, there will be an evening celebration uh, 
which will again be a slightly shorter version of the existing one. It will again run from the Monday to the Friday. Five themes around hope. Um, and uh, there'll be a youth programme as well. But again, as I say, it will be a, a self-consciously a cut-down version. Hmm. Yeah. Because it's online is different. Yeah, I, but it's interesting, isn't it? And it's exciting that many of us will be attending churches on Sunday morning uh, through YouTube or through Facebook Live or through Zoom or whatever it is. And actually, it's it's we've kind of got used to it, haven't we? So in a way, this this is quite an exciting way of opening up a completely different way of doing something for a season. I don't think anyone's thinking this is a long term solution. But but are you excited about about what the future holds in terms of this sort of way of doing things? Yeah, I'm very excited for this year. I mean, obviously, we're this side of a, a bunch of work and getting things uh, organised in a relatively short frame of t- uh, amount of time. Um, but very excited about the opportunities, but we do, as it stands now, broadcast the convention. You can live stream uh, much of it, but obviously you're, what you're getting then is um, the actual convention itself and you're linking in with an already existing event. This will be slightly different, so it's a very exciting opportunity. It struck me in some ways, it's also a bit like um, when Jesus was ministering, there weren't straightforward boundaries between those who were um, close to him and his disciples and those followers and then the crowds and the internet provides a chance for all kinds of people to access and, and find out and hear for themselves so that's a really exciting thing. So lots of people who are listening to this are probably uh, supporters of Keswick or fans of Keswick uh, how can they uh, be praying for for you and your team? Thanks so much so one thing we're praying for the contributors we're thrilled to have Christopher Ash doing bible readings on the Psalms and finding hope in Jesus from the Psalms. So we're thrilled to have Christopher as the Bible reader, um, welcoming him back, praying for the right contributors, um, praying for all the technical things to come together, the kids and youth programmes. Um, so, and that above all, the Lord Jesus is honoured and glorified and that his people are really encouraged um, through this time. And it can be a real beacon of hope, as I say, that we're not a prisoner of the present moment. And this would get through, that our mood, our well-being, our identity aren't defined by our circumstances or our situation. And that we can we find hope in Jesus Christ. And that would be the real prayer that we as a team would continue to find hope in him and that those who hear and listen would as well. Brilliant. Well, anyone who wants to keep up to date with what's happening and, and the announcements as they're being made and the sessions as they're being uh, scheduled should look at the website. Also follow Keswick on um, on Twitter and various other places. We'll put links to that uh, in the show notes, but do go to the website. Um, again, links to that in the show notes as well. But anyway, it's a start of an exciting time. There'll be lots more podcasts to come as well, which will all be pointing towards that uh, convention. And we'll be talking to all kinds of different contributors uh, along the way and asking them lots of questions that will also sort of fit in with the uh, Keswick Convention's uh, mission aims really of hearing God's word, becoming like God's son and serving God's mission. James, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jan, very much indeed. So thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time. Mm